You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of The Dirt on the Past. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of this program. This week, we're at the Extreme History Headquarters, speaking via Zoom with Diana Hernandez and Portia Hopkins of the National Collective Memory Institute, based in Texas. Welcome, Diana and Portia. We're so glad you're here with us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks. We're excited to be here. Yeah, thank I'm Great. I'm excited you guys are both with us today and we're so looking forward to talking with both of you about your work. But before we dive in, I would like to introduce the two of you. So Diana Hernandez has taught in Texas for 10 years and has been an independent researcher on issues of language, diversity, and preservation since 2014. Diana obtained a master's degree in Spanish language, literature, and culture from the University of Houston and a bachelor's degree in public relations in Spanish language, literature, and culture from the University of Houston. In the summer of 2019, Diana conducted research with the National Institute for Anthropology and History in Mexico City. The initiative was titled Sites of Memory of the Slave Route in Latin America. And this focused on the preservation of sites related to Afro-Mexican history and culture and as part of an overarching effort by UNESCO. Her work, locally and abroad, highlights the preservation of cultural landscapes related to the history of racial violence. She is currently documenting and researching the history of a Mexican, Mexican-American cemetery in Travis County area, as well as additional sites in Houston as part of her master's thesis. She is currently the founder and executive director of the National Collective Memory Institute. So welcome, Diana. Glad you're here. But I also want to introduce Dr. Portia Hopkins. So Dr. Hopkins earned a bachelor's degree in history from Texas Christian University in 2006 and a master's degree in American studies from the University of Alabama in 2008. Her doctorate is from the University of Maryland in American studies. She pursued current her, her current research opportunities all over the world, including the United Kingdom, Ireland, and Spain. Currently, she is pursuing opportunities in research, education, and professional development in the Houston area while doing postdoc research and data curation for African American studies at Rice University. She is interested in oral history research, grassroots social movements, and the ways in which African American history is remembered in the 21st century. She has taught courses at the University of Alabama, the University of Maryland, the University for Houston Clear Lake, and currently teaches American Studies in the Honors Program at Lee College. 
Dr. Hopkins is the co-founder and co-executive director of the National Collective Memory Institute. Well, both very impressive introductions. We're so excited to have you both here. And Diane, I think we'll start with a question to you. If you could tell us a little bit about the National Collective Memory Institute, um, when you founded it and why you founded it, what prompted you to do so? We're interested in diving into that a little bit about what the Institute actually does. Uh, yes, of course. So we unofficially founded it in 2015. Uh, Portia and I had just serendipitously met um, through our research and um meaning that she was researching a site next to a really close to the site that I was researching and community members were like, Oh, you should meet Dr. Dr. Hawkins. And so I, I sought her out and we had a meeting and we, it was just, we instantly clicked and we realized that we should join efforts. Um, And so then that's when we started to just collaborate on research, but then officially we formed the national collective memory Institute um, last year. It's been long overdue. We've been doing this work for a couple of years And we wanted to just make it an official organization. Um, So essentially we founded it due to a need to focus on the preservation of historic sites related to historically excluded communities um, because we both research those types of sites. We want to aid in the preservation of such spaces belonging to BIPOC communities specifically. Um, We aim to reconcile our past and rehabilitate this nation's collective memory through the work that we do. But most importantly, we want to provide strategies and tools to local leaders and community members for the continuation of uh, preserving historically excluded spaces, but while at the same time forging alliances with similar entities, because we realize we can't do this work alone. And then I'll hand it over to Portia. I think one of the most exciting things about this type of work is that it is ever-changing. And... um, particularly in the in the cultural climate that we're in right now, it's incredibly important and relevant. And so we've seen in the last even just six months, like an uptick in community groups forming and then community groups being um, reorganized around a common goal or theme. One of the projects that Diana and I, are, that is very dear to our heart are the cemetery projects because a lot of these cemeteries are, um, from un- un- their unmarked graves of um, formerly enslaved individuals. And so we're really, um, really dedicated to trying to bring those types of stories to the forefront. And then also, as Diana said, just ensuring that communities have the tools necessary. Often we'll go into a community and the people that are doing this work are retirees that you know are working with the county to try to uncover some of uh, maps and deeds and things, and they're not, you know, formally trained historians or archaeologists or anthropologists, anything like that. They are, you know, so-and-so's grandma is really interested in Fort Bend history, and so she's at the county every week. And um, what we find most exciting about working with these communities is providing them with the language and the tools to um, to bring their bring their worth forward in in a way that um, you know we can start collaborating with other institutions and um, 
government entities. And I think that as, again, like as we move forward and progress um, with this work, we're just going to see more and more individuals and groups coming forward saying that they're, they're interested in learning those strategies. Yeah, it sounds like this has developed out of your own independent research and then encountering other people who were working independently and realizing there's so much more that can be gained by collaborating and then also having that that touchstone which to access then, as you said, just in the community, city, county, government entities that can then help provide some heritage preservation opportunities, even funding, um, signage, all of that sort of stuff. So um, that's exciting. And it just sounds very much like what Crystal's been involved with here in Extreme History and some of the projects that have been incredibly meaningful um, locally for us as well. Yeah. You know, and when you were talking, Diana, about how you both met and you had similar backgrounds, similar interests, similar research interests, and you kind of clicked and came together. It just reminded me of how Extreme History Project started, too, because uh, myself and the other co-founder, Marcia Fulton, met in a very, very similar way. Um, it, you know, it was um, almost exactly the way you you described. So <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. She was working on a project and I was working on a project. And, um, you know, she came to ask me a question about a project and then we clicked. And from then on, we, you know, we kind of worked together and formed um, Extreme History Project. So that's that's interesting that it was the same for you too. But um, I love that idea that you talked about with, um, you know, the historic cemeteries, because I think they're so critically important as well. And with extreme history, we do a lot of work with cemeteries. And, and, you know, I do see that a lot. Um, Dr. Hopkins, as you mentioned, that there's people so passionate about these places, and protecting them, preserving them. And but oftentimes it is, you know, people who are retired or people who are just doing it out of the goodness of their heart. And there's not a lot of funding behind it. There's not a lot of those tools, like you were saying, and resources. So I think it's important that we do professionalize this work and do this work in a professional manner, because that gives it longevity. And it also gives it um, the the staying power because there's funding behind it. So I was excited um, to hear you say that, um, Dr. Hopkins, too, and, and you as well, Diana. But Diana, you and I met um, a few months ago after a virtual symposium that you held in October called the Necropolis Politic, Mourning, Reclamation, and Preservation in Bicot Pock Sacred Spaces. And I attended this symposium and loved how you highlighted scholarly and creative work that speaks to the past and present knowledge of rituals for processing grief and loss. And that research on remembrance against acts of state-sponsored violence and struggles for reclaiming that historical memory. And so it was a day-long symposium, and I wasn't able to attend the whole day long. And I, I loved the parts that I was able to see. I was able to catch the morning parts. And so I emailed you afterwards to say, did you record it? Because <laughs> I, I wanted to see the rest. And then I, I think our conversation kind of went from there. But um, we met and talked. And, and I just love the, the work that you were, you were both doing. 
um, on the symposium, but in a wider, and then I got to find out about the wider scope of your work. So, so, but my question is for you, Portia, um, you moderated a discussion on it during the symposium on the Cemetery um, Sista initiative. And can you tell us more about this? I love that. And I've done, I've, I've researched it a little bit and kind of dug into it a little bit, but I'd love for you to explain what it's all about and your um, facilitation of that, of that part of the symposium. Sure. Um, well, first of all, uh, Jennifer is doing phenomenal work. Jennifer Blake is a, Blake's is a doctoral student at Texas A&M University in the Urban Development and Regional Science Program. And she's doing just this incredible work for someone that is so early in their career. I mean, you sometimes you meet people and you're just like, oh man, you're going to go far. Let me just attach myself to your, to your, your cape. Yeah. <laughs> because you're doing things, you know. Um, but she's a graduate student at um, Texas A&M, and she's studying cemetery management in unincorporated historically African American cemeteries in Southeast Texas. So when I had the opportunity to moderate for her, you know, I kind of fangirled out because I'm like, you know, you're doing the type of work that our institute wants to highlight. And so the fact that we're able now to work with you in a capacity that can showcase your work, I mean, that's really what our institute, um, it's all about. She uh, has created several tools that includes mapping um, and blueprinting and, and using geospatial technology to identify where some of these unmarked graves um, are and she's really focused on like underserved communities and so she's already like tapping into that younger generation of people um, that may or may not be fully fully in tune with how deep and rich the history of the United States is and so um, and she's working on multiple platforms you know and so I really I really enjoy the opportunity to work with scholars that are thinking about this type of work in new and innovative ways. Um, when I, when I think about the archives or cemeteries and when I, even when I was, you know, when I was teaching face to face pre COVID and and I would tell my students like, Hey, we're going to a cemetery today. And they'll be like, why? Yuck. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like that's like boring stuff. And I'm like, no, actually the cemetery is where it's at. Like there's a lot of stories that are just, that are literally embedded in the the cemetery and you need to be there so you can experience it and so you can feel connected to it. And so um, Jennifer Blakes is doing that, that type of work on this large scale and she's doing it every day. Um, And and another thing that I just wanted to mention that um, she seeks to fill the gaps between black history by repairing and preserving and protecting these black cemeteries that are so often overlooked and so she she already recognizes that it's an uphill battle but she's not battle weary in doing this type of work you know and i just think it's so refreshing to see um young this new crop of scholars this new young group of scholars coming up and they're and they're looking at these projects in new and exciting and innovative ways and bringing that excitement and that vigor to these projects because i mean as you said these are things that have to continue. It can't just be, well, now you're done with coursework and on to the next thing. And she has never approached her work that way. So I was really honored to be able to um, moderate for her session. And I actually spoke to her um, for, for about 15, 20 minutes afterwards, um, just kind of geeking out over her research. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's great. I know it is. It's wonderful to have that 
continuation of this this work in these cemeteries and and really this much more of a focus on on the cemeteries because like you say i mean they are our archives there that's where we can go to better understand our communities and better understand the the long historic historical perspective of our communities here in um, bozeman we do historic walking tours in our cemetery and i always do the tour with the fourth graders because i just love you know kids and and seeing their reactions to these cemeteries and so we uh at we always meet at the entrance to the cemetery and i can always hear the kids kind of whispering about oh this is spooky this is scary this you know all those things about the cemetery and and so i start off by um not really addressing that but really setting them at ease and saying you know this is you guys are going to be history detectives today and we're going to go into the cemetery as as historians and i'm going to have you really observe what you see and tell me what you're seeing in the cemetery and they're so good and it just change you know just flips that perspective of these places as scary um, you know, locations where you don't want to be after 10 o'clock at night or something to this place of learning and this place of inquiry. And so we have, um, and then we have just a lot of fun in the cemetery. And we, we focus in on the historic parts of the cemetery. But a lot of times the kids will say, you know, well, my grandpa's buried here somewhere, you know, and then that that gives me the opportunity to, to say, well, bring, come back here with your family and and explore more. And so, you know, cemeteries are such a good place to learn, and not just about history, but about botany, about the flora and fauna that you see in cemeteries, and also the, um, you know, I always have the the students do math when they're in the cemetery as well, and and look at the symbolism on the headstones to see the iconography and the you know, all those things, which which are some of those tools that we can use, um, not just with students either, not just with kids, but with adults. Um, I do the same. I pretty much do the same tour that I do with the fourth graders with adults, and, and it works for both. <laughs> but anyway, Nancy. Yeah, you do them with my students too. Yeah, I yeah. do. I do with your, your college-age students. So. <laughs> I, I actually do that with my son. Um, my son has been going with me to cemeteries since he could walk. And, um, it's, he's seven now. And it's funny because his, um, his teacher, um, wanted to conference with me because he was, um, telling his friends, he was in kinder and he was telling his friends that his mama looked for dead people. Oh boy. <laughs> I could, I was wondering what was going to be the, <laughs> the thing that made the teacher want to conference you. Yeah, he was a little concerned because he was talking about the dead. And so then I, you know, I, I calmed her down because I was like, no, I'm a researcher and we, I do a lot of cemetery work. And she was like, well, that makes sense. And now every like on weekends, he'll, he'll just tell me like, let's go do some research. Yeah. And so it's like, we're develop. I'm developing a scholar. There we go. There we go. It's a it's a different way to think about um, a cemetery as a as a space and a place. I think when you bring them in as doing research or history detectives. Um, But I want to I want to stay on that issue of space for a little bit because it it seems like a lot of the impetus for beginning your organization and what prompted your research was this idea of. Um, spaces, these places on the landscape that have not been tended to, visited, protected, highlighted. I love the idea of some of these neglected places um, that maybe are just 
being cared for by somebody who's older now and are not necessarily um, safe from what might happen to them in the future, becoming a place where there's almost a curriculum developed around them and that school teachers start bringing kids. So then it does become a place on the landscape that people are aware of, because I think that understanding that geography, it, it sort of gets it in their bones then, a different understanding of the history of this country. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, because I think visiting a place and understanding what happened there, um, Crystal's experience early on with Marsha, they were able to um, get the Archaeological Conservancy to to buy and protect the first Crow agency, the first place where the Crow were confined to a reservation and where the headquarters were, where they would receive um, the um, rations, rations and, and yeah. many goods that they were right. given by the government. And, and yeah. I think the idea that this was this happened to be a place, it was privately owned, there was just a small marker, but people don't know. I think when you go and you stand there now and you understand that history and you have a tour led to it, um, it changes everything that what you understand about how that reservation has gotten smaller and what that meant to be confined. So I just was hoping that you could talk a little bit about kind of that experience of place, so the importance that it has the impact on us and therefore the significance it can have in preserving it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know, Portia, would you like to, or do you want me to? Um, Go ahead. ahead. You go ahead and then I'll jump in. Yeah. Um, So I can give an example of one of the cemeteries that I'm working on in Austin. Um, It was deemed, well, it is still deemed an endangered, neglected cemetery by the city. And it's actually an orphan cemetery, meaning that nobody owns it. The last um, person that owned it passed away and never left it in, left it to somebody. And so, but then the community still cares for it. They still leave flowers. They still... Um, organized cleanups and it's when you look at it from that perspective it's not a neglected site they don't have the funding to clean it up as much as they would like but somebody cares for that cemetery Um, and so we started to help them we started to do the research on the cemetery itself and its history and um, we, we created a database of all of the burials and we're actually still compiling that data. We have documented about 220 burials out of the 450 that are there. So we still have, we're halfway there. And um, <clears throat> we started to to give talks on the history of the cemetery, and it started to to get the attention of local commissioners and um, the Texas Historical Commission. And suddenly, it was a place. It wasn't a neglected cemetery. Um, They were asking how they could help. Uh, City officials are now asking how they can help, um, what needs to be done. And so we we get, we, along with the descendants that we've been able to locate, get a seat at the table, so to speak, as to what can be done to save this this cemetery. Um, And we just helped clean up the cemetery for the community to celebrate the Day of the Dead. Oh, and it fantastic. actually coincided with the Necropolis Politics Symposium. Yeah. We got the sheriff's department to go and clean up the, the cemetery. Um, so it, it's, just, it's turned into this beautiful experience where we're really coming together to, to save this, to save this, this much needed um, space for the community. 
So it's a place also then where new um, community ritual activities are happening, you know, Mm -hmm. that are bringing people together. And then, and then maybe other people who don't have relations there also become interested and curious and value that Mm -hmm. aspect of the past that may not even be directly theirs, but is now their neighbors. You know, I think you come to value it in a different way when you see it through kind of living action that way. That's, uh, that's a wonderful story. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, well, that really- and I, would, I would say my um, example would be I'm doing some work with the convict lease and labor project in Fort Bend County. Um, in 2018, there were 95 bodies that were recovered in the process of the school district building a um, technical high school. And, uh, you know, the first day they, they found like six bodies and then the next day they found 18 bodies. And then the next, you know, so by the time it was over, they had found 95 bodies and they realized that these bodies were, um, of people that had been leased out from Huntsville, which is a a prison here. So they were part of the prison system. They were, um, convicts that were leased out to private companies At, at this point, it was in the Imperial sugar company, Imperial sugar, and they were leased out and they died there. And the way that the bodies were laid, um, it almost seems like they they fell where they died and they dug a hole and they put them there because there is no really order or anything to it. And so now um, there's a continuing conversation since 2018 because the, the bodies were recovered um, there was lots of press. There's lots of conversation about, well, what do we do? You know, there's engagement with the community. The school district was involved, the, the, um, the, the state and county. And um, eventually the na- there's national news coverage of this. And so now it becomes a conversation of how do we best reinturn these bodies? How do we pay homage to these people that have labored here? How do we be respectful of um, the people that have died here? But then also, how do we how do we go about making sense of all of this? Because it's a very messy history. Fort Bend County was at one time the second most populated county um, in Texas for slaves in 1860. And so the land um, itself has trauma within it. You know, and so when you look at a map of this area, it's like, well, here's the here's the current high school. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful high school. Here's the current beautiful high school. But then go back 60 years and this was farmland and go back 60 years further. And this was, you know, a sugar farm that was um, housing convict lease convict leased people and then go back 60 more years. And this is where slaves were. And so it's not it's not as far off as we think it is. And when we start to see these. Um, cemeteries that are that are um, re-engaged with the community or, or we see uh, example like the Sugar Lane 95 where now the community has to have a reckoning with this I think it becomes even more important for us to recognize that like place changes with time but then also those memories are bound to that place and so you can't you can't have a beautiful place that has trauma on it without reckoning with that trauma so as beautiful as the high school is, it's beautiful. Um, they did a, a fantastic job in building this high school. They also have to have a reckoning with um, the traumatic history that went on in that place. So, so somebody who owned that corporation was basically getting 
free labor from the prison, essential, almost yeah. essentially mm-hmm. a continuation of slave labor. And are they able to, right. to track who these people were and identify the 97 people who they found, the bodies, and identify yes. them? Okay. Yes. They have so, records. Uh, yeah, so TCJC has done um, that research as well as um, CLIP, the Convict Lease and Labor Project, as well as the school district. The school district spent um, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a report um, done to document as much as they could find and as much as they knew about the Sugarland, uh, the Sugarland 95. And so we do know to some degree and with relative accuracy who these men were and one woman, who these people were, um, what they were doing there. We know that they were working um, in on the Imperial Sugar Farm, um, working in the gin, working in the fields. I see your name and I see, um, you know, your prison number. I get that. I know how ha- tall you were and how heavy you probably were, but I really don't know, like, what was it like growing up in Fort Bend? Mm-hmm. What happened to you? Yeah. What happened to you before you became part of that system? You know, each of those names represents a larger story. And I think it's so important to make sure when you're doing this type of work that they're just not names on a piece of paper. You had mentioned, you had mentioned before that, you know, when you take your students to the cemetery, there's all these different types of projects that you can do with them and activities that you can do with them to make the, the people that are buried there seem more real. And I think um, with these undocumented or underdocumented cemeteries, like that is the piece that's so important. You know, some people don't even have a, a tombstone to be able to do those types of activities. So we have to then imagine what their life may have been like. That That's what I was that really struck me is when you find those types of burial grounds, you know, work I would do with my students was looking at symbolism and then having them try to find obituaries and understand um, what brought people out to Montana, what they left behind, you know, how they ended up here and, and buried here, you know, very early people, they would, they would say where they were born, born in New Jersey or born in, you know, but then that tends to die off. But, um, but with these folks, I mean, the fact that they were buried there makes you wonder if their relatives were ever notified they they made no effort to send bodies home to where they were from i mean there's so much trauma just surrounding the death of that person and not even understanding if people knew who were their relations um how old they were you know were they were the conditions that bad or or what, you know, but the, just the fact that there was no effort made to memorialize them or get their remains um, back somewhere or that their relatives were too poor and the, the, the burden of the cost would have been on their family. I mean, there's so many stories you can unpack just from the fact that that cemetery exists like it does, but you do, you want to breathe the life into those names that you can, at least you can connect those. That's something. It's a starting point, but it is a lot of work, um, but it can be an ongoing project for the community. It's, it's, that can be restorative, I guess, in some ways. Yeah, and it has been. I do think that um, because of the work that the Convict Police and Labor Project is doing, the work that they're um, doing with Rice University, there's a task force now um, at Rice that's looking at um, the history and legacy of slavery, and um, we're doing a mapping project. So there's a lot of things that um, are coming forth from this effort. But, you know, Mr. Reginald Moore, who passed away in July, 
he really started this. And he was the one that was writing to the congressman saying like, hey, there's bodies buried here. I mean, this was in the 90s. There's bodies buried over here. You need to address this. This is an unmarked cemetery. You probably need to have a conversation with somebody. He was he was doing this work. And so it kind of goes back to what we were saying before, that these are people that are in the community that are doing this work because they know they know their local history and they can say institutions and government entities, they need to get involved to preserve this history, to honor these people that have been lost. And so um, I'm, I'm grateful that our Institute is doing part of that work, but I'm also very thankful and grateful that there are other institutions, larger institutions, research institutions that are doing this work as well, because it's so important so, so important. Right. You know, and it all kind of snowballs. It's kind of that snowball effect. You know, if, if one person kind of starts this work and then others, like you you were saying, you know, if you can work collaboratively and bring in other entities and other institutions and other school districts and all those things, it kind of does snowball. And then it's this huge movement and then you can't stop it, which is great because I think that's so important to validate that history and to reconcile that history. And so what a, um, an opportunity for the students in that school to be able to maybe do some of this research or, or, or at least learn about it and know about this history, even if it, it's such a hard history, it's important to learn about and validates the lives of those people buried there. So, so just a quick question before we move on. Are they reburying, reinterring the bodies somewhere else? Have they created a space or where, what have they done with the remains from that cemetery? Um, the bodies were re-interned. They were re-interned. And so um, at this point, they're working on a memorial. But again, you know, think, these things get messy because now it's like, well, who who has the authority to voice what's going to be on that memorial? And who who is who is coming to the table to have a conversation about what we should include in that memorial? And who is going to fund right? This type of work. Um, what about the emotional toll that it takes to do this type, you know, so there's all of these different things. The bodies were reinterned, but um, we're still working or in the process of working on getting that memorial and it, and it, and it gets messy. I mean, there's really no other way to say it. Like I never thought historic preservation was messy until I got in the trenches and started doing it. And I'm like, geez, Louise, like this thing is it's turtles all the way down, right? Yeah, like it's crazy. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's for sure. It, it's always messy, but it's so important, you know. So, so you, it it is messy, but the um, the outputs are so uh, important, and they're so critical. So, yeah, yeah. I think it's um, it brings together a unique kind of group of stewards. Um, yeah, but yeah. Diana and Portia, we we hear that you um, have another symposium that's coming up just right around the corner in March, and we we're wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that, what the focus is, and if it will connect with the past symposium on the necropolis politic um, and and what that looks like. Yes, yeah, so this symposium from in March for March is titled Ciclos, Rebirth, Migration and Placemaking. And it's gonna highlight histories of agency, resilience, survival, and perseverance. So while the necropolis politic focused on the remembrance of the dead, uh Ciclos is meant to celebrate the living. It's uh meant to celebrate life. 
So we see it as uh, the part two of Necropolis Politic. Um, it's going to take place on uh, March 11th and 12th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Central Standard Time uh, via Zoom. And all of the re- registration and event information is available on our blog, uh, reclaimingmemoriestx.blog. And uh, actually, Porsche and I will each be presenting at the symposium. Oh, so fantastic. Please Wonderful. join us. Yeah, <laughs> yes. we, we will, for sure. We will. We're going to take a quick station break before we continue. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and Crystal Alegria on kgvm.org, Bozeman, or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Diana Hernandez and Dr. Portia Hopkins on their work with the National Collective Memory Institute. So, Diana, I'm so excited that you guys are going to do the follow-up symposium. I, it, Like I said, I got to see some of that, the first one, and it was so interesting. And I love your idea of, you know, the, the first one is celebrating death, and this one is celebrating life. And so um, maybe you could just talk a little bit about why you decided to do that, what, you know, kind of why you you were juxtaposing one with the other. Oh, yeah. Um, so one of the... I, one of the iconic symbols um, to Day of the Dead is the monarch butterfly. And in Mexican culture, we view the monarch butterfly as the souls of our, of our dearly departed. Um, and it just so happens that the monarch butterflies make a migration to Mexico for like right in time for, they arrive right in time for Day of the Dead. So that's why we see them as the souls of our dear, dearly departed returning to visit, to visit us. Um, and then in the spring, they start to migrate north towards Canada. And it's like right around March that they're passing through Texas. And so that's why I just started to think about, it's a little, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just very, it's, it's my background in literature where I just start to get very philosophical and deep. And, um, and I just started thinking about their migration and how it's really the monarch in, the monarch symbolizes life and death at the same time. Um, and so I just, that's why, where I got the name Ciclos, which means cycles, um, because it's once again, going back to the monarch, it's the cycle of life and death and they're migrating and spawning new generations that return home. Um, and they continue the work, all the generations successively continue the work and, and I just kind of see that as what we're doing, what our communities do in order to survive um, and, and not just survive, but thrive. Um, and so that's kind of where the idea came from. I love that. I love, I love that yeah. idea. And, and so uh, that's why I asked you to expand on that because you had told me that before. And I just thought that was so amazing, that symbolism of the monarch butterfly and the life and the death. And, and, and like you said, you know, we're going through that, that cycle again and again and again, and we see it within our work. We see it with what, with the research that we do with these cemeteries, there's the, the, the death aspect of it, but there's also the life of these people who lived like you were saying, Dr. Hopkins, the life of these 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 people was so important, and they all have a story. Each and every one of them has such a a full story, and so it's nice to be able to recognize that life within the death as well. So you know, and also I I love that you guys are doing this work. Um, for a long time with the Extreme History Project, we were 
we found we started kind of thinking about this in 2009 and got our nonprofit status in 2012. And so we're a little ahead of you. And but we always felt we're like we were kind of the only ones out there doing this in organizational form. There's a lot of people who do this work out there, but we were kind of a anomaly. And so it was so exciting to talk to you, Diana, that day, because I thought, oh, my gosh, there's someone else doing this work. And, and, you know, we're, we're different in that we're a, a standalone organization, we're not connected to a museum, or we're not connected to a university, or we're not connected to um, a larger institute, um, and so, and you guys seem similar in that way that you um, aren't really connected. You're kind of moving forward, um, standing alone as well. And I think it's it's important to do that because you can be a little bit more versatile that way, and you can really kind of jump on some of these projects that need the work done. So I was just wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about what your future looks like for this organization. I know you're a very young organization, but I, I feel like you have a lot of ideas and a lot of uh, directions. So so can you talk a little bit about that and Diana or Portia, whoever wants to take this question or both of you? Sure. Well, you know, one of the things that we're really excited to um, continue to do are oral histories and um, utilizing oral history as a tool, teaching other um, community members how to conduct oral history so they could uh, continue to record their history. Uh, we're really excited about that aspect of our project. Uh, both Diana and I have taught and used oral histories in our classrooms, and it's an extremely accessible tool for people. We've also um, taught and utilized like genealogy research in our classrooms and um, being able to tie those to the cemetery projects. Um, Diana uh, did some really amazing work when she was teaching at South um, South Early High School with her high school students who um, not only had researched um, people that were buried in the Mexican cemetery in Fort Bend County, but also had gotten in touch with some of their ancestors and said, hey, do you know that this person is buried there and this is your ancestor? Um, and so we, we definitely want to continue to do that oral history work and continue to um, build curriculum for K through 12 and um, post-secondary education. I, we just think it's so important that um, teachers and communities have the tools to be able to teach this, right? Each one, teach one. Really excited about that. And then um, also we have a uh, uh, several cemetery projects that we're um, interested in continuing to pursue. And it, it almost seems like every quarter something else will come up. And so we're really trying to figure out how best to, um, how to fit all of those things in our timeline, because all, each project is pressing. There is no, this one's more pressing than the other. Um, I can, I'm going to brag on Diana a little bit because she's actually doing some UNESCO work for the Freedman's town in Houston, um, which you, you of course know UNESCO is like, you know, the gold standard. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we definitely want UNESCO designation. I want to, I want to lob a question at both of you. Um, I, I know we're all familiar with the, the Tip O'Neill saying that all politics is local. And in doing a lot of this work, my background is more in archaeology, and I've come toward history, um, crystal I, history, and, history and archaeology. <laughs> so we, we, we kind of meet in the middle, which has been wonderful for both of us. But, um, but my feeling is that um, 
all history is local. And I want to just throw that back at you and ask you to expand on that idea, because I feel that there's something very important about local history um, to our national understanding of who we are as Americans. I'm just thinking, I don't know, Portia, do you want to take that one? (laughs) Yeah, um, you know, local history is one of those things that I think I think, um, well, let me give you this example. When I lived in DC, I never went to the museums because they were there. So why do I need to go? They're there. (laughs) But when people would come visit me, they'll say, oh, we got to go to the museums. We got to go to the monument. We got to go to the Smithsonian. And I think what happens is when you're living somewhere for so long, you forget about how historic the place that you're living is. And so, you know, living in history, living in history, living in Houston most of my life, it never really occurred to me that like important things were happening here in this area. It was just like, oh, U.S. history is happening elsewhere. And then it's just history, you know, boring, boring Houston history here. But then when you realize like, you know, um, Baytown is one of the places that they were able to get the majority of the oil refined for World War II, like out of Baytown. That's amazing. You know, um, when you think about um, Texas had its own little war with Mexico, like they just we're just going to have our own war because we're Texas. We can do that. You don't think about those things when you live here. And so I think um, one of the great things about local history is you challenge people to, to go back to their roots and really think about how these local histories are interconnected with state and national and global histories. You know, I used to teach a um, model United Nations um, class. And one of the things that the students were always so excited about was learning about other cultures. And so, you know, we would, we would, they would learn about all these other cultures and all these other communities. And I'll say, great. Now, connect your story to their story. And watching my students from Baytown be able to say, oh, yeah, actually, this is a similar thing that happened in Baytown that happened in Argentina. That's kind of phenomenal. They don't they wouldn't think about that unless it was presented in a new way that shifted their perspective. And so I think when you're doing any type of local history work, you always have to start with the fact that it is connected to a global narrative. It is connected to a national narrative. We just have to be a little bit more intentional about how we're um, pursuing local history because you will, you'll forget about it. You'll be just like me in DC. Like I don't need to go to Smithsonian. It's always going to be there and look at us now in the pandemic can't even go. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. You know, and it does, it personalizes the history a little bit too, because if you know your local history and you engage in your local history it's personal to you because that's your place that's where you are in the world but then if you can somehow say okay look at what's happening in this next town over or this next state over or nationally or, or globally you can take that personalization and apply it and it really makes it more interesting and accessible because of that as well. And so I always challenge people who are doing genealogy to do that with their ancestors, you know, their people that they're researching in their family tree and, and really have them, you know, they know who that person is, they know 
who that how they're related to that person so it makes it personal but then have them better understand that person's role in the national scheme of things and better understand you know what that person's role was in the civil war and then they're connected to the civil war and they better understand the civil war through their ancestors history so so i like your question nancy that way yeah that i was I, I give you i give you both a's for your answer um i yeah i was just thinking i mean montana I, I don't think i knew anything about it before i moved here from the east coast and i always thought of the civil war as mainly a southern thing and i had no idea that there were civil war battles fought out here and that the Civil War itself just impacted this region unbelievably. We had people fleeing to come here during it and before it. And then we had people afterwards resettling, trying to find opportunities. And we had northern and southern issues in different parts of towns, in different gold mine sites. We had the, a very late gold rush here. And then in Butte, we have this the the richest hill on earth, they called it, because of all the copper that electrified basically the entire world, came out of this hill in Butte, and now it's the largest Superfund site. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> and then, you know, we, we had all these Irish immigrants coming over. And, and I'm Irish. I had no idea there was all these other random Irish people that ended up in Montana for a totally different reason. So you have all this world migration, local migration. We have this incredibly deep history of Chinese um, uh, immigrants coming over and then some staying and some going to great lengths to get their remains shipped back home at an time. I mean, we have this incredibly complex history. And that's, I guess, where I was getting at with this question is I, I think you think of local history as just being local. And as you said, Chris, it's never really local. It's, it's always tied to these big, especially in America, because, you know, the majority of the people from somewhere else, and even if you're an indigenous American, you're moved from where your ancestors originally were. And, you know, and, and it turns out again in Montana, we have one of the oldest skeletons in North America right here in Montana. So we, we kind of have this crazy, deep, weird history that for a long time people used to think of it as just this empty land, you know, pioneers could come out. So so I do really feel like there's so much we can learn about our whole national history and and also like those scary, difficult parts of our national history mm-hmm. through our own role of our ancestors or uh, of the place we live in within that larger story. So I guess that's where the work of both organizations, I think, creates such a an amazing, um, it opens doors and windows for people, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. And I think it's also important to recognize that it helps us understand where we are. Um, for example, the cemetery that I work on in Austin, when we started to collect death certificates for those buried there, we started piecing together the history of the community. And we noticed that an overwhelming number of people that were buried there were dying from the pandemics of the early 20th century, um, mainly influenza, tuberculosis, and pneumonia. So then from there, we started to look into the history of pandemics and learn that disease was decimating the Mexican, uh, Mexican-American community and the African-American community in that area during the 30s and 40s in particular. And that's important to remember because that community is still largely Latinx and is an African-American and is now considered a COVID hotspot. Right, right. Mm. You see this, this repetition, this cycle that mm-hmm. is tied directly to that extreme poverty and issues that mm-hmm. they were experiencing 100 years ago, you know. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that makes me also think about these descendant communities that I know you guys work with descendant communities quite a bit. And so do we. And, you know, that that's such an important part of this collaborative effort that you do and that we do and, and really having that uh, voice that travels through into these descendant communities. And so that's an important part of, of this work. And that really speaks to what you were just talking about with this with the pandemics as well and with with this current pandemic that we're in. So, yeah. So thank you for bringing that up too, um, Diana. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, it's actually, and it's actually interesting that y'all mentioned civil war because there's another site in San Antonio that we're working on. Uh, it dates back to 1866. So this is the reconstruction era oh, and it's yeah. a military site. It's a cholera site, a cholera burial site. So these are all mm-hmm. soldiers that died from cholera. There was a cholera pandemic that swept through San Antonio and these soldiers died from it. And it's unmarked and it's right next to a hike and bike trail. And people pass it every day on their, during their exercise routine. And they don't even know what they're passing. Like they don't know that that's such a significant site, but they're passing it on a daily basis. And so we are working with the city of San Antonio to get a nomination for historical marker so that at least we can have that to memorialize the site. But um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's sad. And yeah. we're working with, we're working also with the military to see if they would like to do some sort of special ceremony for right. the, for the marker unveiling, which it would be nice if they could do that for us, but we'll, we'll, we'll update you on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah and awesome. sometimes it's just the more they hear about it and a little bit of press gets people interested in being involved. So good luck with that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, it's important to mark those places where pe- people can see them and people, like you said, are going by every day. And so, so in that way, it's kind of that double-edged sword, you know, people are going by and kind of um, going over this site. Um, but, but it would be um, good that if people could see the marker and learn about this place and learn about the history of this place. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and the memorialization of these places is always, is, is sometimes difficult as well, like we've talked about. And so it is hard to know how to do that and how to memorialize places with unmarked graves where you don't even know sometimes who's in the graves. And so we've, we've kind of come across that with our work um, here in Montana at a, uh, a settler cemetery, um, uh, which is basically filled with people who were mining in an early mining town. And it is called the Nevada City Cemetery. And there are so many unmarked graves in the cemetery and of course we don't we try we've tried hard to find out who are in all these graves and we've we know there's about 300 graves and we have about 20 names so you know there's just so many people who will probably never know um, are there and so how do you memorialize that you know and so we we the solution we came up with is just to put a sign to put signage there saying there's all these people are here we don't know their names but they're here and so but that's always hard. You know, that's a hard thing to do. It's been really good talking with you both today. We've so enjoyed 
you're taking the time to tell us about your project and to talk about your organization. And so where can people find you? Where can people find uh, your website, your Facebook page, all those things? Okay. Well, we, um, we have a website, uh, nationalcollectivememory.org, nationalcollectivememory.org. Um, we also have Twitter. Our handle is at Memory National. Okay. And Instagram, our handle is at National Collective Memory. So okay. those are our three platforms for okay. now. Wonderful. Yeah. For now. Huh. You might have we want, to add a, we want to add a Facebook, but we're, we haven't gotten there yet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. You're you're ahead of us with Twitter, I think. Are you on Twitter? No, we're on Twitter. You're on Twitter. Yeah, Extreme okay. Mysteries on Twitter. Well, I'm not on Twitter, yeah. so that's the problem, I guess. There, yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, we're, yeah we well, do. We kind of do the same. We do Twitter, Instagram. We do Facebook as well, and then our website. So, yeah. Yeah, you ha- you kind of have to get a dedicated full time um, millennial to yeah. be doing that yeah, work for you. Right. Yeah, you have. To, I I tell my niece like my niece had to explain what TikTok to me was. Yeah, was yeah. Like, what are they doing on TikTok, Gia? Tell me, tell me about TikTok. And she's like, Oh gosh, Auntie. Okay, let's bring this back. <laughs> oh, my kids get their news from the weirdest places. Know. You know, I know. Um, but it keeps me a little bit in the know. Um, a, 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 this much, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's so exciting, and we look forward to hearing more um, about your symposium in March, and hopefully being able to virtually attend. And and it would be wonderful when this is um, all over this pandemic to someday have a symposium in person um, with you ladies. It would really be um, exciting. And we look forward to seeing future work that you do. So tell us again what the name of the symposium coming up in March is and the dates. And how do people find out about that? Okay, so it's called Ciclos, Rebirth, Migration and Placemaking. It's taking place March 11th and 12th. Uh, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Central Standard Time. And you can register at reclaimingmemoriestx.blog. Okay, we'll make sure we post that. Yeah, and, and, it, and is there a registration charge or is it free of charge? It is free of charge. Wonderful. Nice. That's wonderful. Fabulous. And you, you bring your own refreshments, I'm assuming. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, um, both of you. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us today as we spoke with Diana Hernandez and Dr. Portia Hopkins on their work with the National Collective Memory Institute. So thank you for listening today. We hope you can join us again next week to find out more about the The dirt dirt on the past. If you're enjoying the dirt on the past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We are a new podcast and we're trying to grow our listener base. So please share. Thanks. And thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.